Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And if you're a first timer, we welcome you to the party, Robert, along with Stephen Kerr. And if you missed it, we broke down the Texans deal for running back Duke Johnson during our first Texans postgame podcast. That deal is now official. Go back to episode 325 for our conversation. But I've got a few tidbits on the Texans later in this one. But first, Steven, the Astros with a perfect week. I was so happy about that comeback in the top of the ninth on Sunday that I turned off the TV. I took a peaceful nap after their ninth straight win. It was great. Oh, Robert, Robert, what were you thinking? Did you see did you see the first eight innings of the game? <laughs> you you should know better not to turn off the television. I know, I know. The Astros, they What happened? What were you saying something happened? Yeah, something happened. Roberto Osuna blew the seven to five lead in the ninth inning. Oh, he never and blows leads. That can't be no, <laughs> no, never, ever, ever. Well, he did on Sunday. And get this, Robert. The yeah, the Astros didn't sweep the Orioles after they just totally thumped them twenty three to two. At first, I thought, wait, is that a Texan score? Were, were the Texans on a losing end of a twenty three to two game with a safety? No, it was the Astros on Saturday night. Then they come out, and yeah, they they were down most of the game. They tie it in the eighth. Go ahead, seven to five. They go to the bottom of the ninth inning, and Roberto Osuna gives up the lead, a walk-off home run by a former Astro, no less, Rio Ruiz. Who the heck is Rio Ruiz? Well, I'll tell you what. The Astros do have a weakness, Robert, and that's facing former Astros. Just in Sunday's game... You had Orioles starter Asher Wojciechowski. He's a former Astro. He made his debut in 2015 with them, then spent time with the Reds and now the Orioles. Jonathan VR, remember him? Yeah, he had several hits on the day. And then Rio Ruiz, who had the walk-off homer for the Orioles. He was a fourth-round pick by the Astros in 2012. So, you know, I mean, maybe that's what some of these teams should have done at the trade deadline, Robert. They should have gotten former Astros on their team. You mean we got beat by the butt slide guy? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, that's the guy, the butt slide guy. I'd forgotten about that. You're right. <laughs> I'd forgotten all about the butt slides that he used to do. No, I remember Rio Ruiz. I, I We had him on the podcast a few years ago, a short interview. RG got him. But also Ruiz was part of the deal. He was in the package that got the Astros Evan Gaddis. And hey, it that's made right. me think of how much I missed Oso Blanco and... You know, Gattis, you know, hey, the guy brought help bring us a World Series, so I, I will always be indebted. That that trade absolutely worked out for the Astros. Yes, it did. It sure did. But as far as getting back to Osuna, though, yeah, he did blow the lead today, and and I there is some concern, and I know there there are sometimes uh, there have been several games throughout the season that Osuna just hasn't had command of his fastball, and when he doesn't locate it, the Astros are in trouble. And he throws too many pitches. And he certainly ran into trouble on Sunday. Man, Steven, I said it before the trade deadline. They really need another big-time bullpen arm. Now they're left with a lot of ifs. If you can trust Osuna. If Josh James is healthy and ready for the playoffs. In two postseason games last year, his ERA was 771. If Brad Peacock can be 100% healthy and dominant. Peacock Struggled against the Yankees and Red Sox in 2017 in the playoffs, but showed up big time in the World Series against the Dodgers. 
Uh, so he's another if. Beyond Presley, Stephen, it's shaky, and there's no McCullers and Morton to come to the rescue. Well, that's right. And, you know, I wouldn't be opposed, honestly, especially if Osuna keeps struggling. I wouldn't be opposed to putting Presley in the closer's role or at least rotating the two set up in closer, as, especially as we get into the postseason, because he, he is just money. No matter where you put him, he's just money. Thank goodness he's come back from that injury. Hopefully he can stay healthy because, yeah, if the Astros lose him, they are in real trouble as far as the bullpen goes because there are so many question marks. You know, as of Sunday night, the Astros, they're one game behind the Dodgers for the best record in baseball. They, they're tied with the Yankees for the best record in the American League. The Dodgers still have a better run differential by eight runs. The Dodgers also have bullpen issues like the Astros. And actually, Osuna and Kenley Jansen, we remember Kenley Jansen from a couple of years ago, each of them have five blown saves this season. So that's something I'm taking into account, you know, as we get closer and closer to the playoffs, because you start looking at the matchups and, you know, with the American league, we could talk about the Yankees or the Indians or the twins or whoever else uh, might be included in that group. But you also got to be talking about the Dodgers in the national league. Well, yes. And I'll tell you what, the Dodgers scare me, Robert. And I know we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're, we're thinking world series and we haven't even finished the uh, regular season yet, but look, the Dodgers have been to back-to-back world series and lost They have very few weaknesses like the Astros, except what you just mentioned, the back end of their bullpen. But really, you look up and down that club, and there are very, very few holes that you can think about. And don't you know that if they get in the World Series again, do you think they want to be known as the Buffalo Bills of baseball and lose three straight World Series? The Dodgers are a scary team. There's no question about that. But you still have a long way to go, and you never know what can happen. The Mets are getting hot. The Braves are doing pretty well, so there's still some time to go before we have to worry about that. And you could go wah, wah on the Astros with the with the bullpen, and, and I bring it up just because, you know, we got to talk about big picture at all times. But Saturday night and the, the rest of this week just tells you just how dominant the Astros are at this point in the season. And, my goodness, Jordan Alvarez just keeps doing it. And it just like, it just is unreal. I mean, he is such a special kid. He's not a 21 year old. This is not possible. I don't know where he came from, if it was from, you know, the planet Krypton or whatever, but this kid's just unreal. And, and he hits three home runs. And I given the last one was like a, an EFAS pitch home run off of a, was he even a, Right, was he was a regular player, right? Not a a pitcher, and that yeah. lost at bat. Yeah, on Saturday. I know. Well, I know they had uh, their center fielder uh, Stevie Wilkerson pitching later, but I think it was before that. But either way, man, he just—I I don't know who trained him in Cuba, but whoever did did an awesome job. Not just to swing the bat, but the type of patience he shows at the plate. It's just it. It amazes me every single day. It really does. And the rest of this lineup, I mean, now Bregman's getting it going. And Altuve's back to being Altuve. And Springer is just a pretty rock solid night in and night out. And Yuli is, you know, like I said last week, I, I don't know if he's, it's the fact that he's, he's hot. I just think maybe this is who Yuli is. He just doesn't stop hitting. He st- doesn't stop hitting for power and average and it just keeps going and going and going and he can hit everything and now Correa is hitting 450 foot home runs left and right 
Yeah, I'm so glad to see that Correa has uh, come back so well from his injury because I thought it might take him a little time because he was out for so long. But no, he's swinging the bat really well. There is one player, though, Robert, I am a bit concerned about. And I know if, if everybody else is hitting one through eight, do you really need to worry about the ninth spot? Well, you know what? You get in the postseason game, especially, and you have a close game like the Astros did today. He might have been the difference. And I'm talking about Josh Reddick. Should Josh Reddick start seeing less playing time and maybe give Jake Marisnik a little more time? Reddick is, I believe, a four for his last 28. And he's been tapering off really since that uh, early season hot streak he had. He's just kind of slowly settled back into the hitter that Josh Reddick has been over the past two years, just somewhere in between. Now, of course, you'd have to move Springer to right field, put Marisnik in center, and you'd lose Reddick's arm. He does have a good arm in right field, but I don't know. I, just as far as his bat goes, I I would love to see it come around because if it does, can you imagine how much better the, the Astros lineup would even be even then? I'm actually wondering why that Reddick hasn't played, and I've thought about it, and I'm like, well, Marisnik would be in there, but I think what they're doing, Stephen, is they're saving – they want to save Marisnik for late in games as a pinch runner just in case they need a pinch runner, and, and that's what Jake can do for you, especially with Miles Straw down, and, and they're limited in their roster, so I think they also like Marisnik as a defensive replacement. But when you come when it comes to the playoffs – Maybe that's off the table because now you can start Marisnik in some games and you're going to have the ability to bring Miles Straw off as that pinch runner extraordinaire. And maybe Josh Reddick doesn't see as much time in the playoffs as he's seeing normally right now in August because, frankly, I, I just think, you know, I think I might have said this last week or I don't know, maybe I've said said this on Twitter at some point, but they're a better team with Marisnik in there because I think they're better defensively. Uh, with Marisnik in center and Springer in right, uh, as much as good as Josh Reddick is in right field. And I also think they're probably better offensively right now because, you know, Josh Reddick is just, it, he can't square up baseballs anymore. Well, it seems like there's something in his stance, like where his shoulder might be leaning too much for. I don't, I don't know, but something seems to have happened to his stance over the last couple of months. Whatever the reason, he's not hitting as well. And yeah, Marisnik has his ups and downs in hitting too, but. That's actually what I'm looking toward is is more late season, postseason. Now, here's a scenario for you. The Astros are probably going to call Kyle Tucker up in September unless something really weird happens. So what if Kyle Tucker comes up in September, plays some, and he actually starts hitting better than he has in his previous stints with the Astros? Come playoff time, do you, do you even put Kyle Tucker on the playoff roster and leave Josh Reddick behind on, depending on what the matchups are, of course, in either the ALDS or the ALCS. Would the Astros do that? I'm not saying they should, but it's just something that has popped into my mind, and you just kind of wonder. Do you see him trusting Kyle Tucker over Josh Reddick in the playoffs after one month in the major leagues, maybe playing well? Probably not. Probably not. But at the same time, you if you played Marisnik more and you had either Straw or Kyle Tucker on there. Josh Reddick, like I said, if, if he doesn't pick it up soon, I, I can definitely see him off at least one of the playoff rosters. Because, you know, you can change the roster after each series. So just because he isn't on one doesn't mean he won't be on the other. Yeah, Kyle Tucker, I said this before, and everybody just kind of discounts this, but the biggest problem with Kyle Tucker isn't just that I'm not super sure that 
He can, he's not just a 4A player. I want to see him do it on the major league level as a hitter first. But let's just say that he is a, a good major league hitter. I, I don't see him like a Jordan Alvarez, like he's going to be in there. Uh, you know, if you got to put him in at DH, Kyle Tucker's got to learn how to field. And he wasn't a very good fielder when they brought him up last time. I mean, I, I, I understand that he's got some speed and athletic ability, but that doesn't always equate to being a good fielder. And he just didn't look like he was a really small, smart baseball player. And he, he didn't look like he had the instincts out there. Yeah, he certainly is. And and now, of course, they're trying him at first base, which I don't think you're going to see that this year, at least at the major league level. That's something they're looking at down the road. But that really, I mean, if, if that's the only question mark the Astros have is whether Josh Reddick is hitting or not, they're going to be okay. And so I'm certainly not insinuating that they're going to fall apart if Josh Reddick doesn't pick his bat up. But like I said, in the postseason, when you get into a close game, every little bit helps. And hey, he might have been the difference on Sunday if he had gotten another one or two runs or another one or two hits to score a run. So you just never know. And you know what? I'm glad the Astros were pushed today. They they need to be. They're not going to blow everybody out. And they're certainly not going to beat everybody 23 to 2. And I don't care how bad of a team you are. When you get thumped like that, you're going to come out the next day with a little bit of attitude and something to prove. But I, I'm, I hope the Astros do get pushed a little bit more between now and the postseason, just because I think it's good for them. It, it keeps them focused and it keeps them primed and gets them ready for when the postseason does come. And they get in a tough game like that. Yeah, I guess every few years, Justin Verlander is going to have a bad outing. Something is going to finally get hit a little bit and give up four runs and just shocking that it was against the Orioles. That's not what well, you Well, and, and everybody really, no pitcher on the Astros on Sunday really pitched that well, you know, just about every one of them. But yeah, Verlander, I mean, he gave up a lot more hits than he usually does. And he threw, I believe, 109 pitches and he only pitched five innings. So the, the Orioles really made the Astros pitchers work, Verlander included. All right, let's go to the Texans because uh, I've got some happy thoughts on the Texans' offensive line. Decided to look at some pro football focus grades from the first preseason game, and you know they're, they're interesting. I mean, you, you you don't always get the full picture, but I I feel like it's a good sort of barometer. And I found some encouraging numbers from rookie Titus Howard, even though his overall grade wasn't great, forty-seven out of a possible one hundred in his thirty-seven total snaps. But in 23 passing situations, he graded 72.6, which is a Not real bad. positive passing grade, pass blocking grade, if you compare that to Texans guards in past seasons. And Max Sharping, you know, 52.7 in his 28 snaps at guard. You know, that's not good. But again, the pass blocking was solid. He was a 63.9. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound like much. You want him to be you know, obviously in the 80s or 90s, but if you can get 70s, that's solid or above average play. And these guys are in their first preseason game. They're rookies and playing positions that they didn't play in college. And I think that is a, you know, it's a good, it's good news for the Texans. That that part is good news. Yeah, it certainly is. 72.6 for Howard. I mean, that that's, I'd say really good, especially that was his first preseason game. And, you know, Robert, from what I keep hearing, Khalil Mack is is struggling at practice. He's he's just apparently not very pleasing to uh, head coach Bill O'Brien and the offensive line coaches. Matt Khalil, you mean? Matt Khalil, that's what I meant. I, I was thinking Khalil Mack. I got him reversed. Matt Khalil, that's who I meant. Yeah, it, he, Titus Howard could very well 
see more action at left tackle or, or someone else because McAleel just apparently hasn't been really catching the coach's eyes at practice lately. He's coming back from a knee injury. He didn't play at all last year. So he's got some rust. But hey, look, a rookie can come in and play guard and tackle and still register a pretty good grade for the first preseason game. That's pretty good. Yeah, Khalil, it, it's not just that he's not playing well. He's kind of backtracking his performance as it goes along in camp, which isn't good from a veteran guy. You know, I asked our Twitter followers, I said, would you give up a second-round pick for Redskins seven-time Pro Bowl tackle Trent Williams? And, of course, everybody's been talking about this guy. The latest rumors in Washington also are his holdout has nothing to do with reworking his contract. He makes about $14.5 million over the next two years. So assume you wouldn't have to do anything with that if you traded for him. You know, And if you traded for him, not only does his presence give you a solid vet, but you know he's a good mentor for Titus Howard and Max Sharping, assuming you'll eventually move one, if not both, to tackle. And Stephen, what do you think Twitter said when I said, you know, should you do this for a second round pick? Remember, you don't have a third or maybe fourth round pick, depending on what happens with uh, Duke Johnson this year. Um, I would guess, uh, let's say, eighty percent. Oh no, this was a ninety-five percent landslide. Oh, so I was low. <laughs> well, and they're right. I, I, I would do it. I would do it. And and here's what I was thinking about not too long ago, Robert. When the Oilers drafted Mike Munshak and Bruce Matthews to protect Warren Moon, they they picked them in the first round. Now, now granted, they had high picks in the first round then. They they went out, they they got their quarterback, but then they went out and got the offensive line to protect that quarterback. The Texans need to do that with Deshaun Watson. And if they're not going to do it through the draft, they, if, if, if they're not going to do it through free agency, then they need to do it with a trade. They need to do it one way or the other. Because as I said on the last show, you can't keep sacking Deshaun Watson 50, 60 times a year and expect his body to hold up. It was fortunate that he played all 16 games last season. Do you really think that he's going to do it again this year if he keeps getting hit like that? Yeah, the, the Texans absolutely need to make a trade or, or some kind of upgrade with something like that at left tackle. It's just a ripple effect too. I mean, you get a, a left tackle that's really good. All of a sudden, it really kind of solidifies your whole left side. Guys feed off of that. And, you know, you see it throughout the offensive line and it gives you depth now because if something happens to somebody, you know, you, you know, if like a left tackle goes down like a Matt Khalil or he doesn't play well, you're not moving Titus over and then bringing in somebody else and what, you know, it's not this rotating of positions. And I know they want the flexibility, but with the offensive line, it's just good to have guys not moving around all the time. Every time somebody gets hurt. I mean, if you have a guy that you can move, sometimes it's, it's beneficial because you might not have as many guys on game day, but you, you do want to be able to just, you know, not have to shift everybody around. And when you shift everybody around, just, I mean, it's such a, it's such a thing where they've all got to work in unison, you know, as an offensive line. Well, that's right. And and that's one of the things I was going to point out, you know, playing offensive line, there's symmetry, there's, there's chemistry, there's timing. It takes time to get those things down. And if you keep switching somebody around from tackle to guard, to center, to tackle, to guard, to center, how are they going to get their timing down with everybody else? And as you said, it, it's all in unison. Everybody has to be on the same unit. 
And you can't keep doing that if you're going to be jumping people around just because you want them to be versatile. That That's really something else that I, I think has bothered me for quite some time, and that's probably one of the reasons that the Texans' offensive line just hasn't been consistent, as well as the injuries. And I beat this to death last year, both on this show and on Locked On Texans, but Deshaun Watson, it's a factor, too. He's got to get rid of the ball quicker. He holds onto the ball as long or longer than anybody in the NFL and he's trying to make the big play, and I get it. And it's going to help if Kiki QT is healthy this year. Now, right now, of course, he's not. As we said on the Thursday postgame podcast, we didn't think that that was going to be a, a serious enough injury to go into the season. It looks more and more like he might be able to be back from or back, be back by game one. The good news also this week is they activated DeAndre Carter. Uh, Carter's basically QT's replacement and he's the other slot guy. So, so that's good. But I mean, I, I really don't expect to see QT until the saints opener at the earliest. No, I don't think so. And Carter is back. As you said, he practiced Saturday and Sunday. So hopefully he can bring some stability to the punt return game because QT obviously just isn't comfortable back there. And especially if he's coming off an injury, if Carter can stay healthy, he won't really the only thing that QT will need to concentrate on is the slot. The big thing is, you know, Jordan Aikens had a really good game on Thursday. You have him as a tight end, but he's really a guy that you can play in the slot. And you've got DeAndre Carter now and you've got QT and then you bring in Duke Johnson. So they have a lot more options than they had a couple of years ago. And that's a big deal. I mean, last year, Joe Webb was playing slot wide receiver when they had an emergency and that's not what you want to see. So that, that part is going to be a big deal. And, you know, also, you know, Jordan Akins, he's going to have to be ready to start at tight end. Cause we still haven't seen a ton of Jordan Thomas. I think he's closer to coming back. And I really don't expect to see third round pick Kahele wearing much this year. It looks like his hamstring injury will keep him out for a while. I wouldn't be surprised if he started the season on injured reserve, which means Darren Fells, which was you know somebody that we might have discounted after they drafted Waring. It looks like there's a really good shot. I would say he's making the team at this point. He might be. Of course, Jarrell Adams, he made some good catches too, so I know they're, they're keeping an eye on him. But yeah, Thomas and Waring are both behind just because they both had injuries, and I, I just don't see a lot of contributions from them this year. But yeah, as far as the offensive weapons, uh, particularly from the pass-catching standpoint, and the blitz pickup, I, I like the fact that Duke Johnson is coming in for that to kind of help out Lamar Miller with that because, you know, the, the more offensive weapons they have with the running game that they can use out of the backfield, pick up the blitzes, catch passes, then the more wide open the Texans' offense is going to be, and that's that's going to help Deshaun Watson too. And you are right. I, I said all last year about Deshaun getting the ball out quicker. He definitely needs to do that if – that it, especially – if you have an offensive line that's below average, he's got to do his part. And I think he will. It's something that comes with time, and it's something you just get smarter, hopefully, with each season. Going back to the Trent Williams situation, you know, we can wish and dream, but I think if they don't make a deal uh, by the end of this week, it's not going to happen because then you're talking about, you know, you got to figure out a way to get Trent Williams acclimated so quickly as an offensive line and learning the playbook and all that. I don't know. I, I do know that as the situation goes on and 
closer and closer to the season, you know, for the Redskins, their trade value has got to be going down. And, you know, for the Texans, that that's a good sign. But now it's just weird because you don't know if you've got a third or fourth pick. I mean, you kind of took both of them out of the equation because this Duke Johnson thing is so bizarre. You can't say we guarantee you a third pick until unless it's like the following year. So, you know, I, I don't know what you would do with uh, giving them a third or fourth round pick or something like that this year. I don't think that would be an option. I mean, I still feel like, you know, it, it no matter what happens, it's probably a second round pick is what you're going to have to give up. And maybe you can convince the Redskins to take a second round pick the following season and kind of push it off for another year. But, you know, I, I, I just there's just no way I see it happening. Well, I still think at this point, if you have a quarterback like Deshaun Watson, you want him around for a while, you've got to protect him. So if it takes a second round pick and maybe a future pick a little bit later in a round and in, in, in a future year, you do it. And yeah, as far as a third round pick, you kind of have to hope that uh, Kareem Jackson and Tyron Matthew play well so the Texans can get some compensatory picks because that's about all they'll have in the third round. But you got to do what you got to do. And it's getting late in the game, as you said, that if they don't make a trade for Williams and uh, Trent Williams, then you're basically going to have to just go with what you have because, yeah, you could bring in someone off the waiver wire, but you're going to have the same problem is trying to get them acclimated before the season starts. Yeah, this McAleel thing, though, this is this is scary stuff. I, I, I just don't want to see. We've seen too many guys that look like him over the last couple of years, and it just it's not necessary. I, I, I mean, I think Trent Williams is available. I, I feel like Titus Howard would, would be a, a more optimistic option at this point. Uh, there's at least hope. He might not be better than Khalil day one, but, you know, maybe several games into the season as, as he gets some more playing time you know, he, he would be advancing and getting better and, and much better than Khalil by the time the you get to the eight, eight ninth game game in the season. Now this schedule, it may not matter. The Texans might be in a hole quickly with the way the schedule starts off for them. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, I just, I don't like where this is going at all. Well, all we can do is just pray that they can go up from where they were because they can't get too much further down to the bottom than what they were last year. But that's very little comfort, at least to me. Any other Texan stuff? Well, I had a couple of uh, interesting things that I saw. You know, D- Deshaun Watson does it again, Robert. You know, a couple of years ago when Harvey came through, of course, he gave money to uh, some uh, Texans employees, the cafeteria workers. Well, he didn't give money this weekend, but he gave something just as important, maybe even more so, and that's his time. He had a special guest at Sunday's practice, Deshaun Watson did. He was a Make-A-Wish teenager named Ethan Hughes, from Cypress Creek High School. He's uh, battling leukemia, and uh, he got the chance to catch passes from the quarterback. He even caught a touchdown pass. And, hey, they even did the signature Watson arrow celebration. So that's pretty cool, and that's something that uh, the kid will certainly never forget. Yeah, a lot of positives actually coming from Houston players. Uh, Did you hear what James Harden was doing this weekend? You know, I did see something, and now I, I, it's it's eluded my memory. I think I, I glanced at it, and I intended to see it, but I, I didn't. So tell me about it. Yeah, he was riding around the Bahamas on a four-wheeler, handing out cash to people struggling. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, they were rolling around on four-wheelers. The, the big one was the $10,000 that he gave to a family. I guess they were maybe fishing or something like that for food. Yeah, uh, mother with several children, I believe. Yeah, I mean, you know, Harden— it, it, you know, they're shooting it. So 
you know, it's like, well, it's, it's a, it's a nice look and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I feel like every time somebody does something nice, a lot of times you will see an immediate, like, well, you know, they were doing this for publicity or we, I don't like the way they did it or whatever. But I think what you got to remember whenever somebody does something like this, you know, that it's a signal to the people that are kids or young people that, you know, give back, you know, that's it. it they're set, trying to set a trend, you know, the stuff that JJ Watt was doing, there was some, I mean, I didn't never got this, but there was always this criticism. Well, he's just, you know, he's trying to be a PR machine and make his name this and all that. And I'm like, well, that's great. That's exactly what, what you want him to be. And that's exactly the type of person you want him to be. And that that's fine with me. And, and, you know, there's, there's not, anything ever bad that comes out about JJ and James, unfortunately, you know, he's got the reputation because he's at nightclubs and stuff like that and whatever. But, you know, he's, he's pretty much stayed out of the trouble with the law for the most part. I, I mean, are, I can't think of anything. You, you know, of any remember? Him no, anything? not anything recently. No, that I can think of. And let me ask you this. Do you think the family that he gave that $10,000 to, do you think they cared if they were shooting video? Do you think all those people who benefited from the money that J.J. Watt raised when Hurricane Harvey came through. You think they cared if if J.J. Watt got all that publicity? No, it doesn't matter. Whether they're doing it for show or doing it at all is the fact that they're doing it. And we we look at our athletes, we, we put them on such a high pedestal to begin with and expect too much of them. So then when they do something positive, there are always going to be some people that are going to find something wrong with that. So... Good for James Harden. Yeah, Bregman was doing the same thing this offseason. He, I thought, was going to do a little bit more with his YouTube channel, and I haven't checked it recently. But I think as this, some of these guys are finding out as the season gets into it, like Colin McHugh with his podcast, it, it's just it's hard to to do both to be a, especially be a major league baseball player where you're playing almost every single day and be a social media presence. I mean, you do what you can and. It always impressed me, like with Tony Kemp and what what he could do uh, on a regular basis with, you know, social media. So, uh, you know, these guys, it, it's it's difficult sometimes for them to keep it up. But at least like the guys like Colin McHugh and Alex Bregman, I'll, I'll give them credit. You know, they were they were after the right thing and, and really trying to improve, you know, marketing and and PR and baseball. And and it really, you know, it needs it. You know, baseball needs it. absolutely it. does need it. And and I no, I don't have any problem with Alex Bragman if he wants to be the face of baseball and that sort of thing. But the main thing is you've still got to produce for your team. And I think that's the most important thing right now. And I, I think, as you said, as the season starts getting into the grind, you need to put all your energy into playing. And you've got the off season. You've got plenty of time to do YouTube or you know, social media, charity events and things like that. So, but, but good for those who do it. I, I just, I don't think they get enough credit uh, when they do things like that. So it's, it's nice to see. Yeah. Well, I want to stay positive. One more thing on a, on a Houston athlete and just a little appreciation, I think for our local hero, Simone Biles, all four foot yes. eight of Simone this weekend, she became a six time U S world champion. I believe, is that right? Steven? That's that, that sounds right. Yeah. I don't she hasn't lost a world championship in years. And then she pulled off a beam dismount that nobody had ever seen in a national competition. If you didn't see it, go find it. It's up on YouTube, it's on Twitter, it's you you, you can find it pretty easily. And of course, 
She's also four-time world champion, four-time, I think it's four-time Olympic gold medalist. It's either four or five. And, and basically she's won every major U.S. and world championship she's been in since 2013. In gymnastics, for a female to be dominant for this long is unheard of. And, you know, are we taking her brilliance for granted? I mean, Stephen, she's the Tom Brady, Serena Williams, Tiger Woods, Babe Ruth, Michael Jordan of her sport. She's just so much better than everybody else. Well, I certainly agree. And and she's certainly been overshadowed by the athletes who quite honestly get the more, more of the press, especially here in Houston. You know, the Astros have gotten so much press, the Rockets, someone like Simone Biles, you know, you, you don't hear a lot about her, but you should. And I think as she keeps doing this, and of course with the Tokyo Olympics coming up next year, and if she continues this, you're going to have to give her her pub. But she absolutely is one of the greatest athletes ever in any sport. And and just to think how young she still is. And she's still got years to not just, I mean, I know gymnastics. And gymnastics, she's old, man. She's 22. She is old. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, to think of the things she could do even after her career is over, like Mary Lou Rutten and some of these others. She could still make a name for herself for years to come just based on what she's done now and what she'll continue to do when she retire, but until she retires. And it's not just, I mean, forget what she's done actually as an athlete, but, you know, to do what she's been able to do and to do it with the backdrop of the abuse that she suffered, um, she's got to sort of carry that torch a little bit. I mean, there's other gymnasts that, you know, have expressed it and talked about it and have been open about it. And, you know, all of them are, to me, heroes for girls everywhere. You know, the ability for them to come out and say this and and, and what they were able to do uh, with going on and doing well in their sport. And Allie Reisman, of course, is, you know, uh, such a, you know, I, I find her such a hero for, for, for everybody with what she's done. But Simone is, is the face of the sport. And she was vocal again this week, you know, about her disappointment. And she got choked up about, you know, the fact that, you know, they had one job and it was to protect these women that were gymnasts and they didn't do their job. And then kind of it, it took, you know, all of them to come out before, it was looked at and then it was looked at slowly and they were, you know, there was still some denial in all of this. And, you know, it just, I mean, that whole backdrop to me just adds, you know, multiples of what she's done. And, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people, you know, they forget about her because there's only, you know, one time every four years where we really put the focus on gymnast and, twice a year, you know, with world championships and U.S. championships where they get a little bit of pub or they get a little bit of shine or whatever. But, you know, I, it, it's, you cannot forget what this girl has done over the last uh, few years and just not only raising the level of her sport and, and the expectation. And I don't even know if it's raising it or just putting it in a place that nobody else can get to, but also with everything else that's gone on with her. Just, you know, I just... I can't, I can't be more proud of, of this girl. And, and, you know, if you're four foot eight, you know, you just gotta be so excited that somebody your size is this incredible at anything. 
Well, every single one of these women are an inspiration. And I think Simone Biles is probably the biggest inspiration of them all, just because, as you said, she is the face of the sport. And, you know, Robert, think about how difficult it must be for all these girls, especially the ones who are still competing, when they have to go to a doctor or a trainer to get treated and all those emotions are still there, you know, when they have to be looked at or examined. And it just it's something that they'll they'll be living with it for the rest of their lives, but they have overcome it in so many ways. And, you know, but but that really shouldn't even be just a single scope of what we're talking about. The fact that Simone Biles has come out and done what she's done from an athletic uh, athletic standpoint is just awesome. Yeah, it, it's something else. And uh, just, you know, got a chance to talk to her on the podcast a few years ago. And, you know, just really what you see is kind of what you get with Simone and which is really cool. And, you know, just that's something else. So go back into the archives, look for that. It, it wasn't a long conversation I had with her, just a few minutes, but we talked a little bit about her background. This was pre-Olympics we were talking to her, but we talked about, you know, she had a crazy experience growing up and, you know, with her family and her mother. And, you know, uh, basically now she's in Houston with her grandparents because, you know, her mother had a lot of problems and uh, just to be able to deal with all of that to start with. And then this other stuff comes up. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's unreal. Um, but she's, she's powered through it and it just continues to excel. And, you know, I just love her facial expressions when I watch her in the competition and you see her getting upset, you know, that even though she's knows she's probably going to have a better score than everybody else, it doesn't reach her expectations. And we, see that same type of stuff with male athletes. And uh, sometimes we, you know, we're like, well, why isn't the girl, she's supposed to be smiling and everything, but we don't seem to think it's a big deal. If, if Tiger's ticked off that, you know, he missed something that was an easy putt that that's something I'm supposed to do. And so, yeah, it's, it's yeah, this is real fun to watch her and just uh, looking forward to the Olympics next year and a, a year away, anything else going on in, in sports before we close it out? Well, just looking forward to the Astros getting back on track. And, uh, of course, the Texans will be playing another exciting preseason game next Saturday against the Lions. Okay, well, at least it'll mean there'll only be two more preseason games after that. So (laughs) that means football is getting closer. And, you know, don't forget, college football is around the corner. Uh, The University of Houston, Rice, UT, Texas A&M, Texas Tech. Uh, My son told me the other day that he's a big UT fan, by the way. I think he wants to go to the Texas Tech game in November, so we're going to try to get tickets for that. So that that should be exciting. I live here in Austin, for those who don't know, and we haven't been to a UT game in a while, so that'll be something to look forward to. But, yeah, college football is uh, coming up too, and high school. I know you're involved in some of that, Robert, so that season's going to be getting underway soon. So a lot to look forward to in the coming weeks. The Longhorns and the Aggies, they're, they're both in the top either 10 or 11, right? Yep. Yeah, they're right up there. We'll we'll uh, have our Longhorn expert, Bob Ballou, on, I'm sure, pretty soon, get a little bit of a preview for what's going on. We talked to him a couple of months ago and got his thoughts on UT football, if you want to go back and look for that in the archives as well. But thanks for doing this, guys. We appreciate you joining us. And if you've got a question or a comment or you want to send an audio message, just go into the show description and find the email. It's info at houstonsportstalk.net, info at houstonsportstalk.net. Let us know if you like the Texans postgame shows. We're going to continue to do them. If you like the interviews or if you just want 
it to be all about, you know, me and Steven. Uh, whatever you think, we want to hear your thoughts on it. Info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. We'll talk to you again next time. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.